the Wandering Journo at Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town. The podcast that takes you on an audio journey through theatre of the mind, highlighting a different slice of Australian life each episode. Today we meet Jazz Rawlinson and Nicole Gibson, who together are fighting to overcome the stigma of suicide. Nicole is one of the people Jazz interviewed for her book, Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day. Nicole is a former National Mental Health Commissioner and was a finalist for Young Australian of the Year at just 20 years old. In this podcast, both Nicole and Jazz share their mental health journeys and how they hope that through their books they can provide support Support to people who find themselves outside of the usual help channels. So, Jazz, just to start with, can we talk about your book? What is this book about? So, I created this book. Um, it's called Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day. Really, it started off as um, a, uh, the project started off back in 2016, and I just finished reading a couple of articles around that time about how mental health and, and suicide in Australia were really skyrocketing mm. and the problem seemed, seemed to be stemming from the fact that we have all these government programs in place but the pro- problem has just been getting worse and worse and it seems that in Australia we're really struggling to find a way to tackle this issue and I was really shocked when I found out that we're losing you know like 2,500 people a year to suicide um, so I really wanted to create something that was different, that wasn't just, um, you know, like we've got helplines out there and they work amazingly for some people, but for other people they don't work. Mm. Um, so I wanted to create something unique that harnessed the power of storytelling and showed people, you know, other people's journeys, um, people who've gone through maybe the same things or experienced depression or, um, you know, overcome suicide and just tells in their own words what helped them get through those hard times and why they're glad that they pushed through. So rather than sort of a self-help book with lots Mm. of tips, you say it's a storytelling approach, really looking at people's stories of going to the brink and back. Yeah, pretty much. So it does does contain lifeline resources as well. Mm -hmm. But I did, as you say, want to harness Mm. that um, power of storytelling. So there's 10 real-life stories from men and women all around Australia and tells about what adversities they've gone through and yeah how they made it out the other side. What do you think it is about a book that is maybe more accessible for for people that like you say maybe won't go to a helpline and mm. I know I heard you talk about particularly for rural areas as well. Yeah definitely so for I think particularly for men there's definitely still a huge stigma um, surrounding getting help and that was also why I wanted to include a lot of male voices in the book because I know that a lot of men will really struggle to go and get help. They might not feel, um, you know, confident enough or they might struggle to feel that they can go and see a professional. So a book like this um, could really be their lifeline or it might be their starting point to, um, you know, to their healing journey. Um, and I've been, yeah, trying to get the book into a lot of places like medical centres and hairdressers and um, a lot of places where people are often just going to be sitting and waiting because sometimes if they're in that comfortable environment, might be at a cafe or something like that, and they see the book and pick it up, um, it might, you know, 
start that it might twig something in them to think okay yeah maybe I could go and see someone or or just to read somebody else's story and say wow I didn't realize I wasn't you know I didn't know I wasn't alone I didn't know other people go through this too and maybe there is hope for me to make it through the other side. So you think there still is that stigma for men? Uh, it's not just a cliche that women tend to maybe mm. seek help and open up about their emotions, but men bottle it up a bit more? Yeah, definitely. I mean, their suicide rates are still shocking for women as well. Um, but I know personally, because I lost my dad to suicide when I was 18, and he just felt that it was really weak to go and get help. He didn't want to talk to anyone. He went a few times, but I think ultimately he just he just felt like, no, I've got to deal with this on my own. He, he didn't even want to consider taking medication to see if that helped. And from talking to other men, um, it's the same story. There's a guy in the book, Rene Redingius, um, an Aboriginal man from Western Australia, and he talks about how he almost took his life one night. He, he swerved right into the path of an oncoming truck and then the next day he just went back to work like nothing had happened he didn't tell anybody there were several times that he um yeah almost took his life and and nobody knew he just didn't want to he just felt like it would be weak to tell anybody what he was actually going through so and it is difficult uh, particularly as you mentioned in the in the country areas to get those mental health services Mm, out to people who need it isn't it definitely um i grew up in small town in coffs harbour and i've recently been talking to a lot of people in small communities around there like Maxville and Bellingen and the number of people who've told me of suicides just in the last couple of weeks or friends or relatives that they've lost is just crazy and a lot of it comes down to yeah people just saying they just can't find the support in some of these towns there's there's literally maybe one psychologist in one community centre um There was one place I went to recently and I went into the community mental health centre just to have a chat to someone about my book and it was empty and it was the middle of the day. There was no one there and it took them four or five days to return my call and I thought if I was someone that was battling with suicide, why would I see any reason to to keep going it's yeah small towns it's it's such a huge issue so how do we get your book out to these areas do you think you were saying you've been dropping a few off to hairdressers and things have you got any idea yeah so there's a couple of local towns that have started stocking the book which is great um but i also sell the book on my website jazzrawlinson.com um so yeah that's it's if anybody wants a copy for themselves or they know someone who's really struggling and could use the book um, yeah, that's the easiest place to get it from. And you talk a bit about your own story in the mm. book as well. We really should mention that. Yeah, I, I didn't... Originally, the book was very much about inspirational Australian people that I'd found, and I didn't want it to be about me, but I also felt that it was important for people to understand why this issue is important to me. So I do share a bit about um, my background growing up, um, you know, with quite an abusive father and going through... Um, a lot of issues um, during my youth and insecurities and um, uh, you know domestic violence and things like that that I experienced and talk about um, yeah how difficult it was for me back then especially as a teenager to see that there was any light on the other side because when you're at school it kind of feels like that's your whole life and there's never going to be 
anything better. So, um, yeah, it's nice to be able to look back and reflect and, and see how far I've come and share that with other people to hopefully show them that they can make it through as well. And even if things seem really dark right now, um, yeah, I promise there are better things to come if you just keep pushing through. So that's the pivotal thing to just give people that hope to get through mm. that dark time? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's why I've made the book really diverse as well. There's a lot of different, um, you know, stories and different experiences, different cultures and backgrounds, so that hopefully there's at least one story that everyone can relate to. Mm. Mm. Excellent. And uh, we'll move over to Nicole. How did you guys meet firstly? Maybe if we could chat about that first and you're working together uh, now sort of on the book and the promotional so, stuff. Mm. Um, I, I actually went on a Black Milk Clothing <laughs> <laughs> Facebook page group and I asked if anybody knew any inspirational Australians or people who'd gone through tough times and made it out the other side with, you know, a cool perspective to share and someone was like, oh, there's this chick, Nicole Gibson, you got to check her out. <laughs> and, um, and that was pretty much it. And then I sent Nicole a message and um, asked if she'd like to be involved and... Yeah, that's how we started working together. <laughs> and you've been working together since. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, tell us a bit about yourself, Nicole. You said you're the, the former commissioner. What was what was that role? Um, yeah, so National Mental Health Commissioner is, um, like, as, as most commissioners are, it's like an advisory role. So you uh, report to, in my instance, the Prime Minister, mm. and then the portfolio got moved to health. So then it was then the Health Minister around um, recommendations on how to spend the mental health budget. Um, and my background sort of before that appointment in my short life of 20 years, <laughs> um, I, when I was appointed, I was 20. I'd been travelling Australia visiting communities, doing a pretty extensive research. So we interviewed about and collated stories of about 50,000 Australians between the ages of 12 and 25 um, to sort of find the commonalities uh, between, you know, what, what the cause of um, mental health challenges were. Mm. Because one of my hypotheses or my premises of the research sort of that grew from my own experience was that surely this isn't just a biological problem. I had a really strong um, experience of my mental health being hindered because of the culture that I was exist that I sort of existed in, um, you know, family culture, societal cultures and um, the pressures from my schooling. So I went to a performance academy in my final years of high school, so the pressures were quite intense in that. Um, so, yeah, the cultural and environmental um, I guess, influences and how that then manifests potentially as um, mental health challenges. And what we found, so there was a team of four of us that travelled, um, was that was very much true. But that disproved a lot of the leading um, opinions in psychiatrics and the mental health space. So I put it into a report, as you do, and um, wanted to use that as a bit of an advocacy piece, um, which was a pretty wild dream because I was trying to go up against, you know, very very powerful powers to be. Um, and, yeah, I created an event in Parliament House when I was 19 called the Parliamentary Friends of Youth and Mental Health and got um, 10 allies within government to sort of sponsor that event. As you do at age As you 19. do, yeah, it, was, it was a pretty radical thing. I, I remember calling my mum and saying, Mum, I'm going to run an event. And mum already thought I was crazy by this point, as you can imagine. I'm going to run an event in Parliament and the theme's going to be love 
and I'm going to get all of the all of the um, parliamentarians to agree that love is the answer. And you can imagine, <laughs> Nicole, we gave you the best education, you know, the best head start in life. Is this is this really yeah? Is this is this the result of um, all of that private education and cultural travel around the world? Um, and it absolutely was. But one of the people that attended the event, and it was a bit of it was very synchronistic what sort of came from that because I was expecting it to sort of be a small event um maybe just with the 10 sponsors and no one else but it was actually the night before charlotte dawson um mm. the night before charlotte dawson had committed suicide and that was quite a pivotal moment i think in australian history around mental health awareness and the abc were looking for stories as you know as you do when something like that happens and sort of a an opinion leader on the matter and saw that there was this event happening in parliament and that i um was kind of the the brains behind that and plugged the story. So we had a lot of um, senators and MPs turn up, one of them being Peter Dutton, who was our health minister at the time. And unbeknownst to me, um, he went back to his office and did his due Mm. diligence and um, six months later asked me if I wanted to sort of be in that role. Um, I think from their perspective, it makes a lot more sense economically to invest in prevention. But I think that there's very few um, genuinely integrated solutions around how to actually tackle mental health health from a preventative space. Um, And what we had come up with were was a bit of a roadmap, I guess, in in our studies and our travels because it was so grassroots and quite unique. Um, And it was the starting point of, yeah, more holistic... Um, integrated approaches that weren't just you know clinical intervention once Mm. there was a crisis at hand which Mm. when I was first appointed out of the I'm not sure if I meant to say what the budget was but billions (laughs) billions of dollars um, a a very large percentage of that you know nearing the high 80s so about 87 percent I think was being invested into crisis intervention Um, and only 4% of that being invested into uh, not-for-profits and prevention, so and early intervention. So that's pretty significant. Is it still the case now? Um, I like to think that there was some difference made mm. in the four years that I spent in that role. Um, I think the last budget from the recommendations that we had put forth in the 2016 report, um, there was like an excess of $700 million um, put more towards... Um, community-based interventions and then the government put a large tender up as well um, for -for not-for-profits to be able to sort of showcase their solutions and what that kind of gave grace for um, organisations to do is kind of um, validate the work that they'd been currently doing in communities because like as Jazz was describing in rural communities you know a lot of the times from my experiences traveling as well these people aren't technically like the most educated to be in the roles that they're in um, and they don't really have the resources to um, uh, yeah, validate, I guess, the success of their work, the impact of the work that they're doing in their community orgs is actually having on, on their community and individuals. So what that tends to mean is market monsters like Beyond Blue and Headspace, and I say that with no qualm, <laughs> um, tend to get you know, a, a lot of the funding um, in the space, but that is taking away from like very crucial and accessible community services. So bringing a voice back to those services, I think, um, is really important and was definitely a focus of mine when I was on the commission. So what about now? Are you guys working together on the book and getting it out there? Or what's the next stage, I suppose? Well, Nicole's doing pretty amazing things because she's just released her own book as well. Oh, great. Um, so, yeah, we worked together on, on my book and it was released late last year. Mm. And so now I'm just, yeah, working on 
spreading the word and um, I actually have a event coming up in Cairns in June which is going to be really great um, because obviously there's um, a really high population of um, ex-veterans up there and okay. so PTSD is a massive mm. issue there's also a really high indigenous um, you know uh, population as well so yeah I'm working with some friends and we're going to be putting on an event up there with um, another one of the contributors from the book do you know what date that will be at the stage um, should be June 17th mm -hmm. it's a Sunday yep. and it's going to be at um, Cairns RSL been very lucky that the sub branch have been very supportive and they're going to host the event mm, and it's very accessible to the people you're mm. targeting it at yeah exactly so I'll be um, hosting the event with uh, Graham Bint whose story is in the book um, he's a former paramedic paratrooper and aid worker um, and yeah he's you know obviously seen some pretty horrific things mm. and had some really severe post-traumatic stress to deal with when he came back home and he, yeah, has some really great tools and strategies that he's learnt over the years with how to, to manage that um, and, and overcome PTSD. And he wants to share that with, you know, especially other vets in the community because, as he said, they're all just sitting at home and they don't, it, you know, it's that stigma as well. They don't want to go and talk about what they've been through. They don't feel like anyone's going to understand anyway. Um, so, so yeah. a book is something they can read in their own time and yeah, take from exactly. it what they want. Exactly, need. yeah. Mm -hmm. His story is, is really inspiring for anyone that's gone through PTSD, but especially if they have a military background. Mm -hmm. mm. Jazz is doing these events. There's such an important component to actually engaging people and mm. one thing that I've noticed so much in my work is um, and what we saw from our tour as well this um, sense of connection was so integral and sense of community was so integral one of the models I use in my work predominantly is a model called Rites of Passage and it looks at how to create that interconnected community and that's something that we need presence for. You know, you need to meet and actually be present within a community to experience that. It can't be substituted mm -hmm. because it's primal. You know, we've, we've always needed that. Once upon a time it was sitting around a fire. Now maybe it's sitting around a TV. But whatever it is, we need that sense of connection and ritual. Yeah. You need to bring that back to our lives by the sound yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> like I've noticed that too in so many communities or even people that have been connecting with me since I've release the book and I mean social media and the internet mm. is great like it's it's really expands our reach for you know mm. getting you know connecting with people but you like Nicole said you can't replace that face-to-face -face deep connection and people mm. that I talk to you know they're really looking for that mm. and sometimes you know especially I think another thing that's important to mention is that you know, through mental health awareness campaigns, we're told to ask the question, are yeah. you okay? Who actually has the resources <laughs> to know how to support someone mm, But that. then if someone says, I'm not okay, mm. people might either not know what yeah, the next what step is, then? <laughs> or you're yeah. about to run out the door. Like someone could be, you know, mm. really struggling on the verge of like trying to decide if they're going to live or, you know, like stay or leave this earth. And then someone's like, oh, I've got to go do this, I'll come back to you later, you know. And, I mean, that's our lives. Our lives are busy. But if you don't have anyone else that you can actually go to in person and say, hey, can we, like, catch up today or I need to get out of the house, can I come and see, like, I need to come and see someone, then 
yeah, that's what that's what where we're losing people. So, 100%. yeah, mm. we really need to actually create more connection within our communities. Self awareness, I think, it's mm. such a big component as well, and often not integrated into mental health campaigns is it's one thing to have a general acceptance that mental health is a problem Mm. but who actually has enough self-awareness to know how to hold space Mm. and it is it for me I do believe it comes down to self-awareness when you're a self-aware person you're not threatened by someone else's vulnerability you're strong in yourself you can be that container for someone to kind Mm. of break you know and and not be threatened by that I think in as as a whole we have a culture of wanting to fix people if they're going through a difficult time you know and pull them back from their struggle and pull them back from their challenge instead of holding them Mm. and actually letting them go through that process and normalizing it for them i think another good point too and this is something that graham talks about in the book and you know in in his work with other people as well um around that stigma is sometimes people don't especially with with pts he says um, he doesn't actually believe it's a disorder. You know, a lot of people look at it as I'm damaged, I have yeah. a disorder, I can't heal for this or I, you know, I can't overcome this. And he said the way he looks at it is this is actually something that you have earned through what you've done. So in, in his case, you know, mm-hmm. this, is, this is a direct result of the it's trauma true. that he's experienced mm-hmm. and that's normal. It's normal to have trauma you know it's normal to have something like you know anxiety and panic attacks and depression and post-traumatic stress after you have gone through a trauma Mm. and by normalizing that and saying hey like this is a normal you know physiological response um and you can you know treat it like you know it can be treated Mm. because it's it's just a, a cause and effect you know from trauma um, sometimes that can help shift people's perspectives so that they actually feel like they can address what's going on or they can go and get help because sometimes looking at it like, oh, I have a disorder, I can't be cured, mm. that can really hinder people's perspective and their ability to, mm. yeah, it, it can feed into that stigma as well. Mm. So, I, identity. Mm, mm. so I think, you know, that's a, something really interesting that, yeah, I found it pretty amazing to hear that from him. And I think it's a really good point, yeah, for other people to understand that if you've been through trauma, it's natural to to have things that you need to work through after that. But it doesn't mean that you're damaged and that you can't ever, you know, recover. So, so if, to get your book, we'll go to the website at this stage? Yeah, if you go to my website, jazzrawlinson.com, that's usually the, e- the easiest place to grab it from. What's the best way to approach that? Yeah, Nicole? sure. Um, so most details for up-and-coming events are all on my website. Mm-hmm. So just my name, nicolegibson.com.au. Yeah, that's the easiest place, I would say, or loveoutloud.online, which is the course itself. Oh, just thanks so much for allowing both of us to mm. share a bit of our stories and what we're doing. It's pretty difficult space sometimes to... Um, yeah to be able to to talk about and share about as like we said there's still a lot of stigma and it can be hard to talk about these issues so yeah thanks for for letting us share yeah i really second that and and i guess for any listeners that are listening that feel sort of vulnerable or even resistant to anything that was talked about um know that that's actually a pretty normal response if you are struggling and there's a space or a conversation that's being offered to kind of help you confront some of those things that you're going through it's a really normal reaction to feel a sense of resistance or tension around it and to yeah just do your best to breathe through that and actually 
potentially even take this conversation on this podcast as that sign to take the first step to healing and loving yourself. That was authors and mental health advocates Jazz Rawlinson and Nicole Gibson. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.